Well, continuing in Proverbs this week, I, I don't have a specific verse uh, in the sense that, uh, you know, I'll, I'll be reading in one, but several verses that we'll be looking at this morning, so be prepared to write them down and uh, clear my notes here. The, uh, the book of Proverbs, we've been talking about the different aspects of, of applying Proverbs to our life. Uh, wisdom in our lives, basically, is the concept or idea that we're shooting for. And as we look at Proverbs, uh, I think it was established uh, from the first sermon, but I noticed it's been repeated almost every time, uh, to understand that you know Proverbs are general principles for living life. And some people look at them like, oh, are they promises? No, they're not promises, they're general principles. But in the framework of these principles, we have responsibilities to them, to act on them. And so, in a sense, they are important to us to understand how God wants us to live, the things that He wants us to learn, the things that He wants us to share with each other, to teach each other, to teach our children. And so, the Proverbs is full of wisdom in that context. But it is to wisdom to apply to our lives. Is it possible that a person can, you can apply all of this wisdom and, and, and to the best of your ability and then have uh, something turn out differently than the general principle says? And the answer to that is yes. And the reason why I explain that today is because today we're talking about parenting. And the key verse in, in Proverbs that most people are familiar with uh, most of you probably already know is, is the Proverbs chapter 22, verse 6. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not part from it. Okay, is it possible to train up a child the way he will go and that he will part from it? And the answer is yes. Many, I, I've seen many Christian homes uh, where some of the kids are, are just sold out to the Lord and one or two of the kids may not be. Uh, and sometimes I see... You know, the opposite, where there's, there's no religion in the home and, and their kids turn out, you know, uh, sold out to the Lord. So don't misunderstand. These are general principles. Again, guidelines as to what we are. And I will tell you that God will, as a parenting context, will hold us accountable as to how we prepared or set the table or laid it out for our kids. And so it's important for us to receive, receive this. And also this idea to train. Uh, the word train here is, is used, it's, it's translated train here to train up a child, uh, possibly to instruct a child. But it's also, when it's used in, the, in, in the, the Hebrew language and it's used in two other aspects, one is when a man dedicates his home, which was a process in the Hebrew culture after a home was built to dedicate it to, the, to God. And he would train, dedicate in this case, his home. And when the temple was dedicated, it's the same word. And so I'm looking at that thinking, wait, you know, I've always just thought of train, instruct, teach. But the word is, in, is and those are in this word, because the home would become a place of instruction and teaching. The temple would become a place of instruction and teaching. But it, this idea of dedicate is important too. And, and so the first time I... I uh, seen this idea of dedicate uh, was something that some people like to do with their children uh, after a few weeks to a couple of years. 
uh, old, they want to dedicate them to the Lord. And they'll come forward and we'll pray over them. And you'll notice that what I will do is I will pray over the child and, 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 and then with the parents that God will use them to keep the child on, on, a, on that path towards the Lord. But then you'll notice I'll ask you all to uh, ask the extended family to stand and make that same commitment. And then ultimately I have you all stand so that we, and, and then we make the commitment together as a congregation. And the reason why I say that is that this idea of train and dedicate isn't just to the parents. It's to people, it's to all of us that when we have contact with children, we are to think of them as ones who need to be trained, committed and directed towards the path of God. And so we are always to be aware of and on, on alert to those, those needs and, and, and the idea of training. But the responsibility falls first and foremost on the parents. And there is a tendency, I, I, I first use the word blame shifting. Uh, why my kids don't turn out right, you know. It's because of this, because of that. Or kids, why I didn't turn out right. It's because of this, because of that. And, but we do have a, a dilemma, if you will, in our, in our culture, in the Western world. Uh, and and it, it's to a degree in other areas as well. Almost any culture that has abandoned God has turned around and put the responsibility of training the child to the state. Whether it's China or you know Western Europe, the, you know uh, you see you know the responsibility, and you'll see the idea of, of of training a child in school. You know, used to be first grade, then we added kindergarten, and then we added pre-kindergarten, and now we added preschool. And a lot of public schools even have preschool, and that's uh, toddlers on up. You know, and so we start training them outside of the home uh, with all of these different people. And, the, and, and I recall, I was raised in, in Santa Barbara uh, in my, my childhood and adolescent uh, years, and uh, pre-adolescent years. And Santa Barbara, uh, the University of Santa Barbara is, is, was primarily at that point in time, especially a teaching college, meaning they were raising up teachers. One of their strongest programs was, was training teachers to getting them their, their bachelor's and master's and doctorate degrees in, in education. And so the schools in, in Santa Barbara were always looking to the direction of, of UCSB for what the current trends in education were and trying to implement them. And I can recall even changing certain textbooks halfway through the school year to a new textbook because UCSB was now using this textbook to train their teachers and therefore this was the newest and latest way and methodology. And uh, right when I was learning to, to read, uh, sight reading was the predominant thing coming out of UCSB at the time. Uh, so you were you learned words, you memorized words, you did not learn phonics, and it was interesting that that uh, I didn't really learn phonics until I taught. Uh, I, I, got, I 
got my teaching credential and, and, and all, and, and I didn't even learn phonics in training there other than very basic things. I actually learned phonics when I started tre- teaching Christian school. And their thing was to teach phonics starting in kindergarten. And so I had, in order to teach the third graders, which is what I started teaching, uh, I had to learn the phonics myself. And, and uh, so I finally learned phonics. Uh, it's, and, and today it's a combination of things. You know, it's, we, we haven't got a, a fixed system and, uh, in our education. It fluctuates. It changes. It, it goes with whatever the latest trends are. And that includes mathematics. It includes history. We hear about history revisionists, uh, you know, where we look at history. Uh, and I can tell you that it's true. I've got books on the Civil War written right after the Civil War uh, and, and then uh, written in the 1860s and 70s. And their accounting of the Civil War is different than the accounting of the Civil War at the turn of the century. It, it, history becomes less and less direct and, and, and stuff like that. So we want to understand that, you know, training is not, and, and, and the training, like I said, though, is, is the trend is to say we've turned it over to the school. We Sex education turned it over to the schools. Health education turned over to the schools. Uh, and health education, including, you know, brushing your teeth and dietary things and, and all those kinds of things turned over to the school. And so we look to our school to do the bulk of the training. And it's interesting that, that the, 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 the schools are and, and have been more than willing, the state has been more than willing to accept this responsibility. Even to the point where we started seeing some transitions where the state started looking at kids who were being, and, and I'm going back to some of the cases that go clear back into the 70s, uh, some of the kids that were being homeschooled or in Christian schools, okay? The state was taking a position uh, that the kids were homeschooled or, or Christian education school, you know, in a Christian school. They were raised in a Christian home and they went to church, so their only exposure was Christianity. Therefore, they could not be a whole person. They needed a public input. And there were parents who were actually taken to court. Now, ultimately, only a few cases went far enough where the kids were put into public school for a period or a season. But ultimately, the court still put it back into the responsibility of the home. Interesting thought. But I, it's still a very... Interesting dilemma that we're in, and the and the state has got itself involved even into homeschooling and 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 Christian education as to your responsibilities, especially if you're going to be accredited so that you can get into other universities and schools and colleges. So the state takes its hand in it. Now, from Christian point of view, we realize that the, the education in the public school is secular. We may choose homeschooling. We may choose. Uh, uh, Christian education, Christian schooling, or we may choose public education. I am, I am not one who stands here and says, thus saith the Lord, you must do. But I tell people that if you, no matter what system you're using, be sure that you've spent the time going through it, understanding it, and knowing it so that you know what your kids are being taught in the way of being trained. There's some Christian education materials out there that I would not teach to my children. 
Well, uh, and the reason is, is that they're slanted in one very direct view in a particular sort of way that uh, is something that breeds legalism. And, and that's not necessarily something that I want to do with my children. But I am responsible by the same point, if my kids are involved in public education, to know what's going on. And so I'm going to suggest to you that if your kids are in public education, be aware of what the school board agendas are. Be aware of what the school boards are talking about. And if you want to, you sit in on a class. And when the teacher says, I didn't invite you, show them you went to the office and got your hall pass. Because they cannot prevent you from being in the class. I know that I had a reputation at the high school of saying, oh no, here he comes. But... I had questions, and I, was, I wasn't afraid to ask them. And it was interesting. As a result, they invited me to sit in on a few things in reference to, to school at the time. Uh, I'm not, again, I, I, I'm not telling you what to do academically with your kids. What I'm telling you is that you are responsible, not the school. You are. And if something, the school comes up with something that's against the way you believe, you're the one that's going to be held accountable before the throne of God. Not your, and, and, and your kids ultimately will be too. But I'm just saying, you are responsible. Well, as Christians, we tend to put it off onto Christian education, uh, maybe to a Christian school or, or to Sunday school. The majority of the kids that come through church will go to public school and come through Sunday school. Some of them will participate in some midweek programs. Awanas, junior high youth group, high school youth group, college group, Bible studies. Okay, so now we've got them two hours a week. The school's got them six and a half hours a day. Five days a week. You need to not depend on Sunday school to do the job. The church is here to come alongside us as parents to help and assist and to give direction, but we're still not the end result. You, the parents, and some of you are saying, well, I'm not a parent anymore. You may be a grandparent. You may be a great-grandparent. Or you may just have influence on your neighborhood kids. Who knows? What you, we do need to understand is, is that God says, basically, you know, uh, the buck stops here. I know that, that that doesn't originate in the Bible, but when Harry Truman said it, it's something that could have come out of the, an influence of the Bible. The buck stops here. I'm responsible. Us as parents, our children, it's here is where it stops. The Bible makes it clear that we are to teach, instruct, train, and I'm going to use the word dedicate uh, as well, our children to the Lord, teaching Bible truth. And I want you to be careful in the process of this. While we are responsible to teach them and present to them God's truth, we can't save our kids. God's truth saves our kids. Their confession of faith saves our kids. Okay, We don't save them. We can't give them enough rules, enough education, enough training. To, what we're to do is to set the table that they can see it, but God's still the one that has to do the convicting and the changing. 
And so we don't want to become legalists about this in that sense. And, and, and you'll see what I mean in a minute. So if you would, the number one purpose in our parenting is to lay a foundation for the work of the Holy Spirit to be done. For the Holy Spirit to convict them of sin, the need of all people for a Savior. To teach them the Gospel, not just the rules a good Christian lives by, but the work, the story of God's grace. For this to happen, it must be real and personal personal and happening in you first. Now, that's interesting. I grew up in a home. Uh, my, uh, my father was out of the picture before I was born. Uh, he really didn't want to have kids. Uh, they had my sister, uh, who was four and a half years older than I am, and then they decided they, my, they didn't want to, uh, my dad decided he didn't want to be married anymore. Back then, a divorce took over a year in California. And you couldn't just run off to Nevada in the 40s, although that started to open up that you could. And, uh, and so they were in the process of getting a divorce, and the, the, the judge got them to do a reconciliation and move back together, and I was conceived. Uh, and that was it for my dad. He, he said, I didn't want any more children, and... That was it, and he, they finally closed the door on it. Um, my mom remarried when I was seven. My mom had a serious alcohol and drug problem. She married a man who came back with PTSD from World War II and, and Korea, and uh, they didn't know what PTSD was back then, but he definitely had some things that were going on in his life. Uh, he had been captured, fought behind enemy lines with Filipinos, uh, uh, while he was uh, behind, you know, after he, after he had been rescued, but but he was rescued by Filipino freedom fighters, and so he fought with them, and they fought the war very considerably different than the way we do, and he saw a lot of ugliness of war that you you know he just and he came back and he had a drinking problem. My dad was such a neat guy when he was sober, but when he was drunk, he was mean. That's funny, I didn't know you could categorize it. There's mean drunks, happy drunks, party drunks. There's all sorts of drunks. Uh, he was a mean. And his drinking was pretty constant. So I was raised in a home where there wasn't a lot of Christian influence. My grandmother, for a period of time, when my mom, my mom and my stepdad married and divorced four times. Uh, same people, <laughs> both of them together. Uh, they loved each other. They just couldn't get along with each other. Um, and uh, I can remember during the times they were apart, my grandma would come and live with us, and, and she would read the Bible. She would take us to church. We'd go to the church that she went to. Well, my, my, my stepdad decided I needed some good influence. And so he started insisting that I go to church on Sundays. And i just walk down the street, go around the corner, hang around you know, the playground at school, and and because I had to walk through the school to get to the church, and uh, come home, found out. So I had to go and get a bulletin, and come home with it. And then I and then he found out that they did Sunday school, and so he wanted. I had to come home. So I I did get some influence. The biggest thing I remember though was it, Sunday school was on the second floor, and and at the window, 
there was a, a, a vent that stuck out like this that was got the air from this way. The hot air was venting up. And you could drop crayons down the vent and watch them melt. Thank God I never started a fire. Uh, but that, and I could smell the, the burning crayon, you know. That was just, yeah. And then the one time that I brought something to, to church to play with, the teacher took it away from me and put it up on the top shelf. And when my grandmother and I went to, to worship service together, uh, I told her I had to go to the bathroom. I went back and crawled up the bookcase and got it, and the whole bookcase fell over. Uh, I don't know if anybody ever found out what happened. Uh, but, you know, that, I mean, my Sunday school experiences, I don't recall much about training in, in the way of the Lord. I remember coloring pages and, and different things. But uh, my grandmother still was planting seeds. She took the responsibility that should have been the responsibility of the home when she could. And my aunt and uncle did the same. And I was blessed by that as well. So why I'm saying all this is that not always are the parents the ones that do it, but if you have the opportunity to be the influence, be it. You, and you don't know when that's going to happen. So getting back to my, my responsibility for the parents, uh, again, a, a scripture that is, is really common that you're you know, frequently used here. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6 uh, Moses is, is recording this, and he, and he says uh, in, in uh, verse 4 of Hebrews, or Deuteronomy chapter 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. All your heart means all your, all, all your inner being. That includes this, your brain. For, for again, you got to understand the, the, and we use the same, we do the same thing. We say, I love you with all my heart. Oh, come on. I, I've seen pictures of my heart. I, I even saw one picture that was taken of it sitting outside of my chest uh, on a little board that was underneath it. Well, they aren't worked on it. They, they took a picture of it. Uh, so I know that it's an organ that pumps. And if it's not pumping right, you're in trouble. By the way, who sends the message for it to pump? The brain. So, with all your brain is an okay substitute here in the context. But a Hebrew person would say, with all your being, your heart, your soul, your mind. It, they, they didn't look at one and then the other and then the other. It's a concert that is supposed to be happening in us with our relationship with God. Why did they bless their home? Why did they bless their children? Why did they bless the synagogues? Why did, because it's all part of, of, of God and being a part of... Why did they say their prayers every day? Why, all of it was because it's a concert of being in love with God. So I am to love the Lord my God with all my heart, with all my soul, all my being, all my might, all my energy. It's interesting... That I do, I do believe that this carried over to the first century church without a, a shadow of doubt in my mind. Because the book of Acts tells us that the Christians were noted for the, their Christ-likeness. They were known by their love for one another. As a result, they would say, oh, yeah, those are the people that hang around together, love each other, that all they ever talk about is God. 
and the he and, and and all the it's 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 how they were known by the way they would love each other and by the way Jesus said that's how they're going to know you by the way you love and it starts here though by the way we love the Lord our God with all our heart with all our soul with all our mind but that's not what I was leading up to it's just that it's a prelude if you don't have that this next won't work verse uh, five and these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Old Testament said that the, the, in the New Covenant, God would, be, would write the words on our heart. But these, even in the Old Covenant, the idea was that they were to be written on your heart. What does that mean? Memorize to the point that you know the intent of the word at least. Memorizing Scripture was critical back here. Why? Very few people could afford parchment scrolls. Those were for the synagogue and some wealthy people. So you, if you were going to have the Word going with you, it's not like we are today where we have a pocket Bible and, and carry it around with us. You know, it's, it's, and, and so the idea was uh, to, to know the Word of God. Have it in your heart. It, it, and, and that idea of it's directing your path. That's another proverb about the, the God directing our path. And these words I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently. Means with all effort and, and, and purpose. Intentionally. Not by accident. Not by osmosis. Teach them diligently to your children and shall talk about them when you sit in your house. When you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. In other words, to talk about the Lord should be a part of your daily conversation. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontals uh, uh, between your eyes. You shall write them on your doorposts, and your house, and on your gates. While you might not be able to afford parchments, those are the scriptures that were important to you, and this would be one of them, for instance. You might have literally written into the you know, in, on your wall, or you might have it on your gate, or over your door, or doorpost. Love the Lord your God. You know, I mean, these would be the things that they would they would they would do. And the reason why was to to remind us. We need reminders. Now, the, the on their wrist they wore. Uh, cloth bands around their wrist with the Scriptures written in them. They wore frontals on their head with the Scripture rolled up. I mean, there's, there's different ways. But the idea was, keep it close to you. It's important. It's, it's, it's to be trained to your children. It's to be given to your children. So here we have a verse that says, train up your child in Proverbs. And this one tells us, train up your child. Be diligent about it. It was no small matter as far as the the the... Hebrew people were concerned and, and, and Moses and, you know, setting it forth, it was clear that this was important to God. Now, I have to just quickly draw back to, to where we began in the book of Proverbs uh, because the idea is, is we want our children to grow up. In fact, many of the Proverbs say Do you want, we basically are striving to give wisdom to our children. Remember how Proverbs defines wisdom. Because it doesn't redefine it all the way through. It just keeps using the word wisdom 
and it refers to, to, to it as, a, as a, a, a righteous lady, in a sense, uh, uh, you know, giving wisdom, and, and the adulterous lady giving the worldly wisdom, the, 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 the righteous lady giving the godly wisdom, you know, the biblical wisdom. And, and so there's a contrast so that we could see. Now, somebody says, why women? Well, because the father is writing to the son and he's, you know, he's doing it. Maybe if the mother, she'd say, man, I don't know. Uh, it doesn't, it, it's more metaphor and allegories a lot of times than it is anything else. But to look at it is to understand that we're to teach our children. And, and what is wisdom? Well, look at verse 2 of chapter 1. It says, to know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight. Uh, to receive instruction in wise dealing and righteous justice and inequity, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise, and you notice the youth being trained, young people again. Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and one who understands obtain guidance, to understand a proverb, a saying, the words of the wise and the, the riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And in, in verse nine, uh, 10 of chapter 9, it uses the same phrasing, except it says the beginning of the wisdom is is uh, is is uh, the, the, the the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So the idea of uh, it says fools despise wisdom and instruction. And this is the constant picture between in Proverbs. There are the wise, and there are the fools, foolish. The wise are ones who fear the Lord and seek after His instruction. The foolish are the ones who despise wisdom, i.e. the fear of the Lord, and act out on their own and do their own thing. So there's just the two categories. There are the ones that fear the Lord, and they're the ones who do not fear the Lord. By the way, it's no different today. All humanity falls into two categories as far as, as the Word of God goes. You either fear the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And by the way, it's the God of the Bible. Not God as you know Him or God as is, you know, it's God as He is. Uh, the God of the Bible. You either know Him, fear Him, and, and seek after Him, or you don't. And the Scriptures, when it talks about the, 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 those who don't, He calls them worldly. And John even goes so far as to say, the wisdom, you know, the wisdom of the world is, 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 is the wisdom of the, ultimately, if you look in verse, chapter 4, uh, 1 John, Antichrist. It says it's already in the world today. Even though he hasn't come, he's, the wisdom of his, his wisdom, the worldly wisdom, is already with us today. Antichrist. It, it, it separates. It points, either pointing to or away. I, I can think of all the time I thought I was walking parallel. I believed there was a God. I believed. I even believed after after my my uh, uh, bi biology uh, class in uh, in science classes in high school, taught by a guy by the name of Doctor Blodgett, who turned out to be a devout Christian man. Uh, he taught it in such a way that that back then you could still get away with using the idea of there must be an intelligent designer out there. And so I bought into that. I didn't buy into a personal relationship with God, but so I, I, I would have, if nothing else, I, I would have thought I was walking parallel, you know, somewhere out there. And I was fine, and I. So if you asked me if I was going to heaven, I'd say I, I have as much chance as anybody else. I wasn't walking parallel. 
I was walking away. And so I come into this category, fools despise wisdom, fear of the Lord, and instruction. What kind of instruction? The kind we just talked about in Deuteronomy, the words and commands of God. I guess I'm rambling a little bit, but I, 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 I want to make sure you understand how important this is. That training our children is, is a, a serious issue. In the New Testament speaks in a couple of, again, familiar passages. Uh, in the book of Ephesians, uh, chapter 6. Verses 1 through 4. Any children in here? Yes, there are a few. Listen carefully. No. Chapter 1, uh, verse 1, chapter 6 of Ephesians says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. It's actually, I think, the fourth commandment in the Scripture, or fifth commandment. But uh, that it may go well with you and, and that you may live long in the land. Okay, so there's to be that sense of obedience from the child. But then God turns around and puts it right back where it starts. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And, I, and this idea of provoke is to discourage uh, uh, also is, is tied to it and, and uh, to make unsure uh, and, and so the idea is that don't, don't, don't let your kids go unsure about what? The things of the Lord. Bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Don't let them go unsure about this. Make sure they know what you know. And be sure that you know what is true. Colossians 3 uh, says very similar, children, uh, you know, uh, fathers do not provoke your children to anger lest they become discouraged. Okay, and the idea of provoking your children to anger is to, to mistreat them, uh, to abuse them, to, but, but part of it is to ignore the training of them. I was looking at the, the context of, of Colossians chapter uh, 3 where I was just talking about it. Um, verses, uh, you know, uh, where it says, Children, again, verse 20, Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. It doesn't talk about training them, but it, it, it's talking about family relationships, and, and the idea is, is still... Again, tied to this idea, you keep them from becoming discouraged by training them the proper way. And, and seeing also, though, is implied in this, that you are being consistent with what you are teaching. I didn't realize, I hadn't thought about that uh, as much uh, as in the sense of that that can cause my children to come, become angry. Angry meaning discouraged, frustrated attitude. Instead of an attitude of gratitude, it's an attitude of bitterness, of frustration, of not knowing what's right, what's wrong. 
I'm so depending on what? The world to teach me. And what the world teaches you today may not be the same thing they teach you tomorrow. What the world was teaching in the 20s, 1920s, is not the same thing they were teaching in the 1960s. And it's not the same thing they're teaching today about what is right and wrong. Right and wrong is relative. God says, no, right and wrong is absolute. Here's what's right. Here's what's wrong. Now, if you look at chapter 3 of, of Colossians, the, the verses uh, 18, 19, 20, and 21 that deal with family, uh, wives submit to your husbands as fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything for pleases the Lord. Uh, fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Then it goes on to talk about slaves being obedient. And people say, slaves being obedient? Yeah, they weren't pro or con slavery here as much as if you're a slave. Don't be a man pleaser. Do the work that you are called to do and do it well. Do it unto the Lord. Any employee, though, would fit this category, and that's where we translate it today in our, in our culture. Any employee doesn't have anything to do with pleasing or getting promotions, or anything else. It has to do with the fact that I am a Christian with all my heart, soul, and love. So, uh, my, I love the Lord my God. And as a result, I want to please Him in everything I do. So I do my work in order to please the Lord. By the way, is it possible that your work might require you to do something unpleasing to the Lord? Yeah. I worked for a company in San Jose. You've got to understand... In the 50s and, 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 and 60s, you know, uh, the, 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 the word didn't have all the, 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 the phrasing that I'm going to use, didn't have all of the, the, the phrasing that would, uh, the, the, the thoughts that would come with it in the 90s and now. The place was called nude furniture. But everybody knew what nude furniture was. It meant it didn't have a finish on it, you know. And so, the, and the storage started in the 50s, nude furniture. And so, it was all unfinished furniture. And uh, I'd worked for a, a furniture uh, maker, and, and we also had an, uh, an unfinished furniture store. And I also did finishing, custom finishing and stuff like that. And this place, they had a spray booth. I had the equipment, and plus I knew the furniture. And so, perfect Bible college job. The problem was, if you answered the phone, your, your responsibility was to say, thank you for shopping nude. Of course, it meant that connotation by the time we were talking when I was in Bible college in the 80s. I couldn't do that. I said, thank you for calling nude furniture. This is Bob Hapgood. May I help you? By the way... I actually know that some people, when they heard the other phrase, other people hung up. Okay? I never got hung up on. So I, I, I stand by my, my boss just didn't, my supervisor just did not like that. But I told him I couldn't say it any other way. They were so thinking that I was holier than now, they put a cross on my spray booth when I was gone for a weekend ministry. I thought that was nice. They obviously understand uh, and I considered it holy ground anyway. I was lacquering my memory work right to the walls. Uh, so, uh, you know, it was, uh, you know, they, they all called it the holy ground. 
So be it. When the man who hired me, the boss, passed away, I was immediately fired. I was the number one salesperson, even though I was not on the floor. Because I got 50% of all the takeovers. When they didn't know how to close the deal, they bring me in to show the, the, how the furniture was built, how it was put together, all this kind of stuff. And I would mix them up a custom stain to finish it to match with something, that, you know, this type of thing. So I got 50% of all that. Plus I got paid my hourly rate. Plus I got paid a bonus for my, my the cost for the amount that I, they would charge for finishing. So it was a very good paying job besides everything else. I got fired. Why? Because of the cross on the spray booth, basically. Interesting, though. The original owner of the store came back into it, said, where is this guy who has all this sales knowledge? <laughs> oh, we fired him. Where is he? Oh, he works for uh, Kelly Moore Paints now. Called me. Asked me if I would come back. I love doing that stuff, so I said, sure. And I finished out my career of Bible college working for that company as well. Um, what I'm trying to tell you is, is stand by your work. I know it doesn't always work out. I know people that in my family even who have a rough time accepting me. I know people in, 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 in Kathy's and my family together, but I know that when we have family dinners, if we're there, there's a prayer. Guess who prays? Of course, sometimes the church is guilty of it. They, whenever the pastor's there, the pastor prays. Uh, you know, but but uh, the idea was, you know, you know, we know that that doesn't happen otherwise. So, do my family know? Yeah. By the way, they respect it. They, they honor it. They, they, they let me in through the door. And what's really interesting, this has happened over and over and over again. And by the way, with the exception of one person, every person at that, at that furniture store, at one point or another over the next three years, came to me with a need and a problem and asked for uh, advice. So, you know, I just want to say, you know, there's, there's this idea of, of, of knowing what the Word of God is, living it out, and being honest with it and it working in you. If it's not working in you, your kids aren't going to see it. And I also put in here, we want to be careful in, as we train up our kids that we're not training them to, to training them all the rules and just trying to, uh, uh, you know, uh, become rule followers. In a sense, all we do is make, make, make them mini Pharisees. You know, uh, we, that's not what our responsibility is. And, I, and, and uh, so it's, we want them to know who Christ is, what he has done. Uh, I don't know how many of you are familiar with uh, the book, Give Them Grace. I brought this because it's a bigger picture than holding up the book. Uh, it, it's, it's a book that goes with it. We teach this periodically here. Uh, probably time to do it again. And uh, it's, it's uh, uh, Elise Fitzpatrick and her daughter, Jessica Thompson, wrote, wrote it together. And the whole idea is to understand that your kids need salvation. Give them grace. And so the, there was some little thoughts in there. Um, give them more than rules. Give them Christ. 
She calls it gospel-drenched parenting. Quite a phrase, isn't it? Gospel-drenched parenting. Uh, the idea is to, to, to well, I'll put it in brief. It's to present the gospel. God came to us, the incarnation, John chapter 1, verses you know, 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. Drop down to 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Verse 18 is to reveal who the Father is. Okay, so Jesus came, incarnation. But they need to know that there is a pre-existent Christ. Not just that He came. Most kids pick up their Christianity at Christmas. In the sense, that's when it begins. No. It's very important for them to understand there's a Christ who came, who emptied Himself and came into... He went into... You've got to be careful of the age you start to teach this, but you need to understand. Think of this. The God of all creation did what? He became flesh. How did He become flesh? He became born of a woman. To be born of a woman, he had to exist someplace for a period of time. Where did the God of all creation exist for a period of time? Because he emptied himself from heaven in a woman's womb, in a teenager woman, in a Jewish girl. I have to tell you, it mind boggles me to think of the God of all creation in a womb. Are you not mind-boggled by that? You should be. It's an amazing thing. He went through the same birth process. Well, I'm not going to say that every one of you went through because he didn't go cesarean, so some of you might have a different process. But he went through basically the same birth process that everybody goes through. And when he came out, I believe he cried. I believe he wet his diapers. I believe he got hungry. And I know he slept because Silent Night says so. He emptied himself and went into the womb of a teenage girl. Miraculously. I mean, the incarnation is more than he became flesh. He just didn't enter in. There's some people who say that Christ entered into the body of Christ and left it before he died. Gnosticism, throw it away. He actually was in the womb of a woman. It's amazing. Why is this incarnation necessary? Why did it have to happen? Sin. Roman road on the back of your bulletin explains the whole picture. Talks about that we all have sinned. We all shall fall short of the glory, fall short of the glory of God. We all need a Savior. And if we confess with our mouth and believe in our heart that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, saves us. Okay, that's a basic outline of, of a presentation of the gospel. Okay, our kids need to know more depth than that. We need to believe deeper than that. And I'm afraid today, as I've I've been reading over the last couple of decades of the various books about the commercialization of church and all sorts of other things that have gone on, 
that sometimes the depth seems to be very minimal. And I'm going to suggest to you that if, if, if that's what you have been exposed to, don't buy into it. With all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, with all your being. Morning, nay, noon, night is to be the emphasis of how we feel about our relationship with God. Look at the life of Christ. The eternal Word became flesh and, and, and like I said, was in the womb of a teenage virgin uh, girl, Jewish girl. Uh, he was born, just like, you know, he grew in every way as a child grows. Uh, Luke chapter 2. Um, I apologize that I'm having to look all these up without having the mark, but I dropped my Bible and all these little things fell out. (laughs) Okay, chapter 2, verse 40. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. That's verse 40. That has to do with the, the early stages of his life. Okay, but we get the same thing when he's 12 at the temple and, 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 and he's leaving the temple. And, he's in, and I believe at this point he has an idea, more than an idea. I believe he knows at this point who he is. And, and, and his parents come looking for them. In fact, they're a little frustrated. Uh, they, they haven't been able to find him where they would have expected to find a 12-year-old. Where was he? He was in, you all know the story, he was in the temple talking with the priests. And they were amazed, not at his answers. They were amazed at his questions. And then it says in verse 52 of chapter 2, And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. In other words, Jesus grew. It, it, it didn't just drop in on him. He actually grew. He learned the Scriptures. He, he, he went through everything a man goes through. A person goes through it, a boy goes through a child goes through. He had to do that so that he could be Savior of us all in the sense of from every part of it. And he did it perfectly. Somebody says, well, yeah, well, he had that perfect nature. Yes, he had that perfect nature. But, but the bottom line is, is that he still went through every phase of everything we go through in order to become our Savior. And so he grew as a child. And, and then at 18 uh, years later, after he's 12, so age 30 to 33, we see his public ministry and his teaching and, 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 and him revealing the Father and the Father's words. And he says, I speak what the Father has given me to speak. And, and he tells us all these things. And people are listening like they've never heard it before. They're saying, he teaches like no one else has ever taught. What would you expect from who the Word is? <laughs> What would you expect from him? Yeah, to teach it because it's his. And he's sharing it in such a way that we can hear it from a man and see it and understand it. But see, that was, that was part of the goal was to reveal the Father and his teachings. But that wasn't the whole picture. The bottom line was is that man is helplessly, hopelessly lost and cannot save himself the Old Testament points to the fact that we need a Savior and it teaches us all the laws to teach us that we break them and we need to confess them and sacrifice for them. We need help. 
And all who believed in that looked forward to the time when there would be the Messiah. They didn't fully understand what the Messiah was going to do, obviously, but they were looking forward to Him. But the Messiah was going to do was something above and beyond what they had comprehended. He was going to be the final sacrifice. He lived from the womb. It's amazing. All the way through life, teaching the things of God, the Word of God, and then His arrest, and then His death, and then His burial. His death was physical. He died on the cross. He breathed his last and under God he commended his spirit. He was buried. His body went into a tomb. But three days later, the tombstone, the stone was rolled away and he walked out. Not his spirit, bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. All of this to prove that everything he had taught was the truth. He spoke about the resurrection. He spoke about And he's the first fruits of it. He's the, he's the beginning of it. He's the start of it. And he ascends into heaven after 40 days of teaching again and is exalted at the right hand of the Father where he stands He sits. It says sits at the right hand, but it says he also stands at times. And guess what he's doing? He's still interceding for us. Constantly. For all who have confessed and still make mistakes, he, he still stands between us and God. So that God looks at us through the blood of Christ. And he sees us as righteous because his son is righteous. He sees us as complete because His Son is complete. You see, you see yeah, it's what He came to give us. This is the Gospel message. This is what our children, people say, kids are too, they, they, they can't understand this stuff. Part of it is, is, is hearing it over and over and over again too. But the biggest part of it is going to be seeing it in us. To see compassion towards one another. To see us at home and know that that how we speak about one another from church is full of grace. Now, I said that cautiously. It should be full of grace. It should be edifying, lifting up, building up. Our children see something different about us. They don't see us get angry over the same things the world does. And when we do, we tell our kids, that's not right. I'm sorry. I ask your forgiveness for the way I displayed myself. This gospel message was so important to Charles Spurgeon to get through to kids. And people say, well, you know, that's going to be kind of a tough market. He couldn't speak to all of them, you know, that type of thing. That's true. But the majority of kids, for that matter, the majority of adults, at the time that he was preaching, didn't read or read very little. 
functionally illiterate would be the calm, the norm. So what did he come up with? How many of you know what he originated that's still used today? You're saying it. Go ahead. (laughs) Yeah, Sunday school and the wordless book. The wordless book is made up of color pages. The pages are yellow, black, red, white. That's the initial book. Since then, uh, Doherty, who is the guy who got involved in the, the good news clubs and stuff like that at the turn of the century and, and different things, uh, uh, added green. Okay? So, the wordless book is also can be the gospel bracelet. Now, I know you can't see from there, all this stuff right there. But there's the first bead on this bracelet is yellow, gold. Just like the page of the book, it represents heaven. Everybody wants to go to heaven. And that's where we start present with our kids even. We want, this is what we want. We want to go to heaven. We know God and be with Him. But we have a problem. This is a heart-shaped bead and it's black. Our hearts are black of sin. So as a result, we can't get to heaven. But Jesus Christ emptied Himself and came in the flesh and shed His blood, the red bead, the red page, to pay for our sins. So that when we confess Him and believe in Him as our Savior, the Son of God, the Lord and our Savior, we are saved. As a result, now, our hearts are white. And heaven is open to us. And in the meantime, the green bead is as long as we wait for heaven, even though we're a part of the kingdom of God, we're not there yet. We grow in Christ. I've been presenting this to kids for 30 years. Down in Mexico especially, we used it. We had it in Spanish for them. I think you've all heard that my last trip to Mexico, I was talking with an 18-year-old girl that accepted the Lord when she was 12. And she says, do you remember me? <laughs> First off, she was, she was a 12-year-old and now she's an adult. You know, I, I, I had to say, no, I'm sorry, I don't. And plus, she was in the wrong neighborhood. She was in a different place. And, we, and, and she, they'd moved there. She came, she pulled aside and just said, and she, she, she held out her hand and she still had the bracelet on. And she said, do you remember you said we had to keep it on to remind us every day. See, this was the idea that, that Doherty had when, when he put this thing initially together uh, with this picture was that the bracelet would be on your doorpost around your, uh, your, your, here it is. The whole story in color. Even if you can't read, you can know the story and tell it to somebody else. Then she asked, do you wear yours every day? The thing was, is the only time I wore mine was during good news clubs and trips to Mexico. Until then. 
So, now you know the Gospel message. You've accepted Christ. Now what do you do? You grow in Christ. And that takes us back to Colossians chapter 3. The first 17 verses, before it talks about what the family is, it tells us what a Christian is. A Christian is one who puts off and puts on. Puts off the things of the world and puts on the things of God. Do we do that in our own strength? No. Colossians makes it clear, as well as Ephesians and others, we do it through the power of the Holy Spirit working in us. And are we perfect at it? No. And the, and the, and the Lord continues to minister to us that even when we fail, if we will confess our sins, He is faithful and just to restore us. He never kicks us away. He, he, he puts something through us. And I, if somebody says, yo, I, I, I feel so terrible. I've just been convicted of a terrible sin that I did. Rejoice. That means the Holy Spirit in you is working well. And has convicted you. Sometimes it's difficult because He may require you to go and apologize to somebody. Good friend of mine ministered with him for a while, and I know that I could share this because I have his permission. Bill Gallagher. He claimed that he put his foot in his mouth more than anything else, and frequently with his neighbors, friends, and people in the congregation, because he just say what was on his mind off the cuff kind of things, and he didn't ever meant mean by it. It just was thought without thinking, speaking without thinking. James has a lot to say about that. Um, and, and so he ended up having to go to these people. And he says he had, <laughs> and he had quite a track record of leading people to the Lord. But God used him abundantly in that. And it happened to do a lot of them by going and apologizing. And they're saying, for that? And he says, well, yeah, I, I shouldn't have said it or I didn't mean to say that, or I, I didn't mean to say something unkind, or, or that could be misunderstood as unkind. And, and they would forgive him on the spot type of thing. And it, but why do you do that? Ah, Peter says, be prepared to give a testimony. And he always was. In fact, that was part of our training <laughs> in, in evangelism explosion. You know, be prepared to give an have a testimony and then share it with people, then some people say, oh, well, I have something similar to that. Or I grew up near where you grew up. Find that connection. And bingo. As we go to communion this morning, the communion is a representation of what I just presented, the gospel message. What we are to train our children is represented right here. We take it every Sunday. Some churches don't. I think it's an extremely important part. I believe when the Scripture said in the book of Acts, as often as they gathered together, they broke bread together, and, took, and, and, and the idea of communion isn't tied into that. I believe they were sharing communion at some point every time they gathered together, which means they could have been doing it more than once a week. But as often as we gather together on Sunday to celebrate the resurrection of Christ, to celebrate the death, burial, resurrection of Christ, and what it means to them, and the fact that he said, do this, and do it as in remembrance of me, and as often as you do, do it until I come again. 
And so we celebrate all of that picture with communion. I ask the ushers to come, uh, pass the emblems out, hold them until they've all been served, and we'll share together.